Well, good morning, friends. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please join me now by turning to the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 19 to 30. In this message, which I'm titling, The Christian Christ Uses, I believe that God wants to teach us how to become the kind of Christian Christ uses. In the 1990s, I think it's safe to say that nearly every American kid wanted to be like Mike. And what was, in my opinion, one of the greatest commercials of all time, Gatorade coined this phrase, like Mike. And with it came a song. Now, if you're a child of the 90s or an adult who did not make it public that you wanted to be like Mike, you have sung these lyrics before. But I wonder, do you know what they say? Here's what the song says. Sometimes I dream that he is me. You've got to see that's how I dream to be. I dream I move. I dream I groove like Mike. If I could be like Mike, like Mike. Oh, if I could be like Mike, be like Mike, be like Mike. Again, I try, just need to fly. For just one day, if I could be that way. I dream I move, I dream I groove like Mike. If I could be like Mike, I want to be, I want to be like Mike. And one more time. Oh, if I could be like Mike. Isn't it funny that oftentimes when we slow down songs enough to hear and understand their lyrics, we don't just disagree with what they're saying, but sometimes we walk away quite concerned. But what this song gives us is an insight into our craving as humans to model our lives after those whom we hold in high esteem, those in whom we respect. Worshiping a man is forbidden. That's what this song is guilty of doing. But modeling your life after the example of a godly person is good. It's right. It's encouraged. From the very beginning of this letter of Philippians, the Apostle Paul has been encouraging this church to influence the city of Philippi for Christ. And to be that kind of church, to be that kind of Christian community, Paul says that each member must have the same mind. Now, what is that mind? If this is the first time you've been with us in our series, what is that mind that Paul is saying that each Christian in Philippi must have to influence the city of Philippi? Well, it is the mind of Christ. A mind, that Paul says earlier in this letter, that lays aside selfish ambitions and instead pursues the best interest of God's people in the advance of the gospel for God's glory. Paul's leadership for this church may have set the vision for the people of God, 
But he knows that every member matters. And every member must be of one mind to carry this vision forward. This vision of of being influential for the cause of Christ in Philippi. This vision, this vision requires every member of the church in Philippi to be on board. But presently, in the life of this church in Philippi, not every member has the mind of Christ. Because there are two women who Paul addresses in chapter 4 who he says will not agree in the Lord. And his point is powerful. Their disagreement, these two people, their disagreement is threatening to affect the entire witness of the church. In other words, friend, do you want to know how important every member is to the life and the witness of the church? Every member is so important that God inspired the Apostle Paul to write this letter and send it by foot 800 miles one way to address the problem. Two people in this one church were threatening the entire witness of the church. And to that end, we come across this section, section that we're studying this morning, chapter 2, verses 19 to 30, where Paul is both saying and showing how this church should live, how this church should work, how this church should think, and how this church should serve. Instead of being like Mike, Paul's saying that they should be like Timothy. Paul's saying that they should be like Epaphroditus. In this section, Paul's not just giving an itinerary of travel plans. He's not just updating the church with his desires to eventually come see them. To be honest with you, I was tempted. As a local church, we are committed to expository preaching, which means is that we commit to a book of the Bible and we walk verse by verse through a book of the Bible so that, one, we can receive it and be encouraged by it, be convicted by it, be corrected by it in the way in which God gave it originally. And two, we have that commitment so that we don't avoid the hard text, so that we can't dodge the text that we don't really want to talk about. And and, and that conviction was really tested as I came to this passage of Scripture. Because as I came to it, I thought, this is an itinerary. How am I going to preach a message on Paul's itinerary? What am I going to say for 40 minutes about Paul's itinerary? Hey, uh, hey, Living Hope, just wanted you to know that 2,000 years ago, Paul was hoping to travel from Rome to Philippi. That's really all I've got. Let's go back to singing. So I was a little bit worried. But as I got into it, as I began to study and, and read and pray through it, I saw something glorious, which we always see in the text. We always see something glorious in the text. And if we don't see it, it's not the text's fault. It's our fault. 
what I saw in this text is that Paul's not just giving an itinerary of his travel plans. He's actually doing something far more intentional. He's putting these two men forward as examples, as models for Christian living. He has been detailing in the first parts of chapter 1 and chapter 2 of here's how you should live. Here's the mind that you should have. And if the church got to this point where they're thinking, is it even possible to have that kind of mind? I've never met someone with that kind of mind. Paul interrupts his exposition of his detailed description and says, here's two living examples. Here's two men that I want you to model your life after who embody everything that I've said in chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2. That's far more glorious than simply an itinerary travel plan. He's saying to us, here is how you can become a Christian Christ can use. So friend, let me ask you a question this morning because we're not going to get anywhere today if you don't have faith. Let me ask you a question. Do you want to be the kind of Christian that Christ can use? Well, may God stir fresh faith in our hearts this morning as we turn our attention now to the best part of this morning's message. That is the reading of God's word. Philippians 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete What was lacking your service to me? Let's go to the Lord quickly and ask for his help in the preaching of his word. Lord, we just ask this morning for you to please open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. We trust you'll do this. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our first point this morning is seek one. Verses 19 to 24. Well, in a progressively secular culture, 
I love when I stumble across Christian brothers and sisters online who are thinking strategically about how to use their interest as a platform to proclaim the gospel. And it's a bonus for me when their platforms share the same passions that I do. One such platform I have in mind this morning is an organization called Seek One, which is a group of guys who love to bow hunt white-tailed deer in an urban context. Listen here how they use their interest to point to their greatest passion. They say this, our greatest purpose is to build a platform to share our faith with the hunting community. God calls everyone, no matter how much influence they have, to use their platform to glorify God and to spread his word. Through Seek One, we are hoping to lead by example and bring more outdoorsmen and women to know and love Christ. Isn't that an exciting invitation for how we can live our lives? Now, while Timothy may not have shared their passion for bow hunting, he may have, maybe not, he did share their passion for Christ, which made him an invaluable resource to Paul. Here's a picture of the situation. As Paul sits in prison in Rome, he says in verse 20, I have no one like him, which is a reference to Timothy. So what set Timothy apart? What secret did Timothy discover that made him so valuable to Paul in the mission of the gospel? Well, verses 20 and 21 tell us the answer. Paul says that he is the only Christian in the church in Rome who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. So here we see in verses 20 and 21 that there are two ways to live as Christians. One, we can seek our own interest, or two, We can seek Christ's interest. Now, what do we know about these self-interest-seeking Christians in the church in Rome? Well, remember, these are the guys who Paul writes about in chapter 1 when he says in verse 15, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Friends, there's that word, or those words, selfish ambition. The Oxford Dictionary says that the word ambition means this, to possess a strong desire to do or achieve something, to possess a strong desire to do or achieve something, typically requiring determination or hard work. Friends, to have ambition is not the problem. To have selfish ambition is the problem. What's the difference between the two? Well, the motive 
Behind the ambition makes all the difference in the world. Paul's saying that the one thing that separated Timothy from all the rest of the preachers in Rome was instead of having a selfish ambition, he had the Savior's ambition. Paul says of Timothy in verse 22, You know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. So friends, the question I want us to ask and answer is this. How can we discern the motive behind our ambitions in life? What's the way that we can discern the motives behind our ambitions in life? Well, I think if we look back at verse 22, we find one word that tips us off to the answer. This word in verse 22 served. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. You see, friends, that word served is not a word that Paul just accidentally dropped in verse 22. It is a word that he has been weaving all throughout this entire letter. Because he knows, Paul knows, that self-sacrificing service and selfish ambition cannot live together in the same heart. Remember what he says about himself in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Usually Paul says apostle of Christ Jesus, but intentionally to this letter in Philippi, because he's trying to address the problem of selfish ambition, he's trying to cut it off at the root. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Again, when speaking about God, how God is using his imprisonment, his own discomfort, how God is using his own uncomfortable situation for the advance of the gospel, he says in chapter 1, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Again, in chapter 2, verse 3, it's almost as if Paul knows what he's doing here. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. In other words... Paul is saying that Timothy is a guy that he can trust. Timothy is a guy whom he can trust that if he sends to Philippi to serve this church, he won't get to the church and immediately ask, when it gets hard, what's in it for me? He's not going to make the travel, make the distance be the hands and feet of Christ in service to the church, and then eventually just say, listen, listen, guys, I've been given, I've been given, I've been given. What's in it for me? What you got 
to give to me. Why won't Timothy ask that? Why didn't Paul ever ask that? Because, verse 20, Paul says this of Timothy, he is genuinely concerned for their welfare. I know their, their welfare. What does Paul mean by that word? What is he saying when he talks about their welfare? Well, I think it means two things. I, mean, I think it means their physical and their spiritual well-being. Timothy really cares about the people in Philippi. He cares about them as people. He cares about them as people of God. He cares about their interests. He cares about their spiritual prosperity. He cares about their, their lives. The problem with having a selfish man in ministry is that he's a few things. One, a selfish man is reluctant to communicate truth from God's word. He's reluctant to confront sin present in God's people because he's more worried about his self-image than he is about holiness, than he is about pleasing the Lord. He's more worried about keeping friends than he is communicating truth. He's the kind of guy who tickles people's ears because he, he wants people to like him. He's a selfish man. Two, he's not worried about living as an example before the church. He just wants to accumulate possessions or things for himself. And then three, his problems are always the biggest problems in the church. So he has no time no capacity to help others with the problems that they're facing. So friends, this text bids us to ask this question today. What is the motive behind my ambitions in life? What are the motives behind my ambitions? Do I strive to be the best parent in order that people will see me and applaud me and use me as an example? Or is my heart simply to serve and prepare the next generation to love God with their lives? Do I strive to climb the ladder at work so that I can receive the respect that I feel that I'm worth? Or am I motivated to be a better provider for my home and a stronger financial contributor for the advancement of the gospel? What is my motive? The Lord is telling each of us this morning that a heart to serve severs ties with selfish ambitions. Friends, do you have a heart to serve? At least to our second point this morning, an honorable life, verses 25 to 30. An honorable life. Now, one of the greatest accomplishments of the, of the Reformation in the 16th century was the recovery of the priesthood of all believers. 
This was a monumental rediscovery because this biblical doctrine teaches that all believers are ministers. In other words, every member ministers. This doctrine dispels the notion that the only people whom God uses are preachers, priests, popes, and other people, other people in the offices of the church. This doctrine dispels that notion. In fact, friends, some of the most used individuals have never held an office in the church. Some of the most used by God, people in my own life. Some of the people in my own life that God has used the most in my sanctification and my coming to Christ are people who have never held an office in the church. One such guy was this guy that Paul introduces to us in this section, Epaphroditus. In addition to Epaphroditus having a name that sounds like a one-horned dinosaur, we know a few other things about this guy. One, we know that he was, a church, he was a member of the church in Philippi. Two, we know that he was concerned about the disputes, the rumblings beneath the surface at Philippi that were going on among some of the members about the refusal to agree in the Lord. And then three, we know this about him. We know that Epaphroditus traveled 800 miles one way, taking at least six weeks to inform the Apostle Paul of this trouble within this local church. And we know that he nearly died. As a result of this travel, he loved the church in Philippi so much that he journeyed 800 miles on foot. Can you fathom that? This, it's further than going from here to Louisville, Kentucky on foot. Setting out with a knapsack on your shoulders, thumbing your way from Fayetteville to Louisville. Maybe Cincinnati. And nearly dies as a result. Of course he nearly died as a result. Now, here's another thing that we know about Epaphroditus. Perhaps the most important thing in regards to the message this morning that we know about Epaphroditus. He was used by God. Now the question is, what made Epaphroditus so useful? Was it his name? There's no chance. I think that there are four things that made Epaphroditus a man useful. A Christian that Christ could use in the advancement of the gospel and the blessing of his people. The first is this. Paul says in verse 25, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus... My brother. Listen, friends, the first and the most fundamental way that we can put ourselves in a position to be used by God is to become a Christian. What is 
becoming a Christian have anything to do with being a brother in Christ? Well, friends, apart from being a Christian, we are an enemy of Christ, what the Bible says. And this is not because he's standing against us, but because we are standing against him. But when we turn from our sin, when we hear the gospel, when we hear the good news of what God has done for us in the gospel by sending his own beloved son to live the life that we could not live and to die the death that we deserved to die. When we hear the good news of the gospel, that Jesus died in our place and for our sins, when we hear that news and we turn from our sin and we place our faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins, the Bible says that we become children of God. And when we're children of God, that makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. The first and the most fundamental way that we can put ourselves in a position to be used by God is to become a Christian. That's the first step. The second is this. He goes on to say in verse 25, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker. Here we are again talking about that little word, ambition. Remember Oxford's definition. Ambition is this, a strong desire to do or achieve something typically requiring determination or hard work. To be used by God, one must not be deterred by hard work. Paul says this of himself in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. He says, I worked harder than any of them, though... It was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Here's the point, friends. Lazy people are self-interested and self-seeking people. And thereby, therefore, they are not in a position to be used by God. But hardworking, selfless Christians are a mighty weapon in his hand. The invitation to Christianity is not an invitation to work less. It's to work more, to work harder in his strength for his glory. Whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. To work hard for all of the ambitions of your work. To be motivated by Christ. By what he's done for you, what you deserve, but what he's given you in return is grace and mercy and forgiveness. And because of that, you want to work, you want to serve, you want to invest so that you can love him and treasure him and serve him and please him. So the invitation to Christianity is to work hard in the power of and the strength of the Spirit for the glory of God. Third, what's the third thing? What's the third way that Paul shows us how Epaphroditus was useful to the Lord? It is this. He says, Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, and fellow soldier. Epaphroditus was a selfless, hardworking Christian who also happens to be a strong soldier in Christ. 
Now, my guess at this point is that all the single ladies in the room today are going, hey, where is that guy? Where is that guy? Where is that selfless, hardworking, determined, savior, ambition, motivated, strong soldier for Christ? Epaphroditus was a soldier for Christ, a fellow soldier, Paul says. His being a soldier for Christ, Paul's saying, made him useful in the kingdom of God. Now, what does it mean to be a soldier for Christ? Well, Paul says this in Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not war, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that text right there makes it sound like a soldier is necessary to fight in this war. Epaphroditus was a guy who defended the gospel and who advanced the gospel. He cared about the gospel. He cared about the good of the church. He cared about God's people. He woke up in the morning saying, I'm fighting for God's people. And here's this glorious, he's a layman. Which means he's not in an office in the church as far as we know. He's not recognized as an, as, a, as an elder. He's not recognized as a deacon. He's a layman. He's a church member. But he was gritty. He was determined. He wanted, to, he wanted to defend the gospel because he had Pauline theology. Which means he knew Every member matters. It's not just the preacher that matters. Come on. That's just 21st century American Christianity. He had biblical Christianity. Every single member matters. Why? Because maybe he read the letter from Peter that Christ had made all believers a priesthood. All believers a priest. They could go into the sanctuary of the presence of God. They can minister to the people of God. All members Matter. Epaphroditus was a warrior. He was a soldier. Not all soldiers have to go to seminary. Not this guy. He was a nine to five soldier for Christ. The fourth way, Paul says, Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Now, once this church discovered that Paul was in prison, they became quite concerned about his well-being. They knew the living conditions of a Roman prison, and they knew that they were not well. And they were very interested in meeting his needs. So, since the entire church could not travel to minister to Paul... They send Epaphroditus, which means this about the guy. He was available. Epaphroditus was available. Listen, friends, 
to be useful to God, we need to be available to serve his people. Sometimes we are so busy that we have no availability to serve or help other people. We become slaves to our schedule. But as hardworking and ambitious as Epaphroditus was, he scheduled room in his schedule to serve God's people. He was a fat Christian. F-A-T. Faithful, available, and teachable. Listen, I hope we're a room full of fat Christians. Faithful Christians, available Christians, and teachable Christians. So Paul holds this man out as an example to the church. Listen, God holds him out as an example to the church. How should the church think of this man? How should the church think of men like this man? Men who embody his characteristics? And I look out in this room and I see so many men and women like Epaphroditus. I see so many. And that brings me so much joy. How should we respond to people like Epaphroditus? Paul says this in verse 29. Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Honor such people. Friends, if I could, I would walk one by one through all the faces that I see this morning and draw attention to how I see the likeness of Epaphroditus in this church. Thank you for being like that. Thank you for being like that. So my friend, how do we become the kind of Christian that Christ can use? The answer is before us this morning. Not to be like Mike, but to be like Timothy. To be like Epaphroditus in the ways in which Paul has detailed their lives for us this morning. Men who, who put on the mind of Christ by taking off the mind of selfish ambition. Here's what's glorious about the Christian faith. It does not require a PhD to be useful to God. It does not require an MDiv. It does not require an MA. It does not require having a book deal with Crossway or Zondervan. It does not require being a deacon or a pastor in a local church. All that it requires is that we do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility we count others more significant than ourselves. That we feel in the depths of our being, I am useful in the kingdom of God. He saved me 
so that I might serve his people. I wonder, friend, do you feel that? Do you know that? I hope we do. I hope this text inspired the kind of faith in our hearts that we could believe something like that, that we could be useful for for the advance of the gospel, for the defense of the gospel, for the good of God's people in his church. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we love your word. Thank you for preserving your word for our edification, for our encouragement this morning. Thank you for men like Timothy and Epaphroditus. And thank you that you're not done, that you weren't done making men like Timothy and Epaphroditus. But you, Lord, even in the context of this church, you have made so many men and women. So many men and women who have the heart to serve, who love to serve you, who love to bless your people. Thank you for that, Lord. Lord, I pray that in response to this text, that you would give us as a local church the kind of of awareness, the kind of conviction to believe that, that every single member matters, that we pursue one another for discipleship, that we pursue one another for correction, that we pursue one another for encouragement, that we don't just, we, we don't wait for somebody else, but that we go in commission knowing that we have the Spirit in, in our hearts as a seal in our lives. And that you call us to take part, which is a remarkable joy, take part in what you're doing. God, would you do that for us? Continue to do that for us. Continue the great work you've begun in this church, Lord, to that end. And we love you, we praise you, in Jesus' name, amen.